Thinkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by a man who is a prolific content creator with nearly 3,000 podcasts under his belt, Mr. Jack Spierko, who some of you might know from the survivalpodcast.com. Jack is an expert in almost all things outdoors, including homesteading self-reliance, food production, and survivalism. So if you were thinking about starting that off-grid homestead, this episode's for you. Welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast, Jack. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I know you've been in the social media world for a long time now, uh, in the podcast game for even longer. I I think I saw your first podcast was from like June of 2008, which is really impressive. So you're you're very much ahead of the curve there. And uh, you've been focused on and talking about survivalism, homesteading, going off grid for years now. Uh, So there really isn't any better person to have on to talk about these topics So uh, those who aren't familiar with us, um, we always try to focus on solutions on this podcast. And our last podcast, we had on Pete Canones to speak about localism and defense of democracy. But we also wanted to have you on to talk about uh, the exit and build strategy, homesteading, uh, food production, all these things as solutions to kind of (laughs) taking back some power in our lives. Um, So just to start off, can you possibly speak on what exit and build means and give our audience a bit of an explanation as how it could possibly be beneficial for their lives? Sure. And as I do that, I just want to kind of say, yeah, this is what I've been talking about forever. But the, the phrase exit and build, I have to totally credit John Bush, who's one of my associates with that, because that's his kind of brand. So I just want to be clear about that to be fair going into sure. this. Sure. But it's exactly the it's the process I've been discussing, as you said now, like this summer will be 14 years and exit and build to me is on two different levels. There's a physical exit and then there's more of a technical exit. So when we look at a physical exit, that's what most people start off with. That's kind of the homesteading model and exit and build in the homesteading model doesn't necessarily have to mean you live out in the middle of Jabip in the middle of nowhere or something like that. For a lot of people, they they can make it work where they are. They've already exited. Maybe they just didn't realize it. For other people, maybe they do need to make a, a significant physical geographic move to live their life the way that they want. And other people might find they only need to move maybe one county over or 30 miles outside of the city limits or something like that. So that's the kind of physical first step. But then you start looking at, well, what do I need in my life? Not what do I want, but let's start off straight from the beginning with what are my needs, and then we'll get to the wants. Well, we all need to eat. We have basic survival needs, and they're food, water, shelter, energy, security, and then health and sanitation. And that's a single bullet point there at the end, health and sanitation, and we go together. And if you go into a a wilderness uh, survival training, they're going to teach you exactly that, 
except they kind of leave the health and sanitation out because if you're surviving for five days, you just dig a hole and that, that takes care of that. When you're living in a home, you have to start ha- be able to deal with your waste and, and your health and all of those things go together. So then we start to build systems that shore up those six survival needs. And so we want to make sure that we can take care of our need to eat, our, our, our need for clean water. And water in that health and sanitation, boy, those really get wrapped and entwined with each other. And so then we just start building that out. We, we look at energy. In, in wilderness survival, they won't call it energy. They'll call it fire, right? That, that'll be one of your survival needs in the wilderness. You need to, have to be able to make fire. Well, the only reason you need to make fire is because you need energy to stay warm with, energy to fashion tools with, energy to cook with. And in a homestead situation, that might take more of the form of solar or wind or uh, passive solar for thermal gain or things like that. And so we shore that all up, and then we can go into any of those topics you want to at, at length. And then, But the other side, and I think this is where people don't realize you can start with where you are, is the technical exit. We now live in a world where you mentioned social media uh, earlier. Everything we do is tracked. I had one of my, my most fun surprises ever yesterday. I got an email from Google, and it said, as we have been unable to track your location data for more than five years, uh, we're basically thre- they threatened to delete my loca- existing location data from more than five years ago if I don't turn it back on. Okay, that's fine. So why, why are people allowing this to occur, all the tracking, the censorship, et cetera? I was I was yesterday I noticed that uh, the uh, Maxwell trial tracker got, you know, censored off of Twitter. Why are you even there? What why are we allowing these technocrats to dictate our lives? So we want to exit that. We want to exit the banking system as much as we possibly can using things like cryptocurrency. Start taking responsibility for our own digital privacy. I run a Start9 embassy server. It's really simple. It took about 5 minutes to install it and every time I discover a new feature of it. It takes me about 30 minutes of gnashing my teeth to figure out how it works, and then it's it's seamless. So we want to take the standpoint of exiting the system as much as we can where we're doing business with people locally, like you guys talked about with Pete, but we're also able to, to like basically expand our local sphere. Like, I can do business with you, and we don't need a bank as intermediaries anymore, and we can make that completely private. If you were running uh, Embassy as well, we could both be on Sphinx Chat. We have end-to-end, fully encrypted data that even the NSA is like, I don't know what to do about it, right? In fact, they kind of got heat for setting that up. Like, you're enabling this. Well, it exists. People can put it together for themselves. They kind of packaged it. So when I look at exit and build, I want to build my life really strong on the technical side, on the ability to do business with people outside of my local area, and I want to exit kind of the really bad places. There are places right now that if you still live there, I don't even know what to say Anybody that's running a business in San Francisco, I don't know why. San Francisco and California do not deserve your time, your talent, your treasure, and eventually maybe your blood. Everything is falling apart there. Get out. um, Move away. Otherwise, at least fortify the position that you're in, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, yeah, I hate to break it to you. I'm actually in California, a lifelong <laughs> California uh, resident. Uh, but, um, you know, you're I, not I, in San Francisco proper, though, are you? Well, no, I'm in Sacramento, which is probably oh. a little more conservative than the Bay Area. But it, it's still yeah, it's still California. It's still California. <laughs> so but this is all good. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we're touching on a lot of this stuff. And I'm really you know excited to have this conversation with you. Um, Matt and I have uh, a little bit of experience with the these topics, but I'm certainly here to learn. Um, so it sounds like the exit uh, and, and build strategy, it's not just
just necessarily like changing your physical location. It's more of like a mindset trying to get away from these big uh, overarching, overbearing institutions that control our lives in one way or another. And yeah, I think that's, you know, exactly what we're talking about when it comes to solutions. The last couple of years, there's been a lot of romanticism about the idea of homesteading and going off grid within the liberty community. I think it existed before, but even more so now with the whole COVID situation. So for our listeners who might be entertaining the idea, like what are the three most important factors to consider uh, before going off grid? So I, I would say more to approach it from a standpoint, you know, I said, let's, let's shore up your needs once you get to the place you're going to build your homestead. But when you're deciding if you are going to move, if you're going to go somewhere and, and do this, I think you should you should start at that point with what you want from the culture, uh, from the type of neighbors that you're going to have, from access to things. Like people think I live out in the middle of nowhere. It looks like it, but I'm I'm 15 to 20 minutes from downtown Fort Worth, but I can do whatever I want because of the way the legal structure works in Texas. And if you're in an unincorporated part of a county. Um, you, you basically have almost no yeah, – well, we have no building codes. We have no rules other than the basic, like let's say the state level. And I'm talking about the state of Texas. Like the, the, the county sheriff doesn't have time to deal with any of that. They don't want to. There's one county in our state that's not like that. Um, I think it's Ellis County. Other than that, like as long as you're unincorporated, you have that freedom. That was important to me. I wanted to be able to raise chickens. I wanted to be able to raise ducks. I wanted to be able to do all my aquaponics. I wanted to be able to, if I wanted to build something, I didn't want to have to go get a permit first. And so the other thing I didn't want was, well, if the city council changes, that changes. So for me, it was really important to find a place in an unincorporated part of the county and that was highly defensible about something that happens in Texas a lot, which is city-level annexation. A city looks at a place that starts to develop. It looks like a pretty nice tax base. They're going to go in and grab it because they, they gain that tax base. So I picked a place that has some really nice homes and some not-so-nice places where it was like it would actually cost them more to absorb us. Like So that was like a strategic status jujitsu level thing, <laughs> right? Like, like So like I think that's more important than just like, Whenever people talk about off-grid, like I want to be real clear, I'm not 100% off-grid. Uh, I have a lot of alternative energy sources, and I try to approach the energy quotient from where we make the distinction between self-reliance and self-sufficiency. So self-reliance is, think about it, the most simplistic terms. If you have a flashlight and enough batteries to run that flashlight for 80 hours continuous. You have 80 hours of self-reliance. We measure that in time. And when those batteries are gone you're done, right? Like that's that's how much you have, 80 hours of light from that particular prep. If we have self-sufficiency, we measure that in percentage. So if we can generate 25% of our power, then we have 25% self-sufficiency because it's basically ongoing. It's recurring. It doesn't run out. Yeah, maybe in 25 years I have to put new solar panels in, but if, if I need them now, they work. Uh, maybe a battery bank has a life expectancy as well, but you see what I mean? It's an ongoing, recurring, sustainable model. So I think that the best way most people can handle this is to move into the, the component of generating your own energy in stages over time rather than just trying to throw the switch and be completely off-grid. There's a lot of things I do here because my property is an educational property. I have these different pond systems and aquatic systems spread out across the whole place. It's honestly not the most well-thought-out design from a standpoint of ease and 
ease and simplicity. And if I was designing it only for myself and my, my wife, it would be half of what it is and it all would be in one part of the property and like what we call a zone one design in permaculture. It's spread out because I wanted to build all these different systems. So when people come here for education and they say, well, I only have a small backyard. You have three acres. I'm like, oh, here's what you can do. So, so we have like this stuff spread out and we're using grid power for that uh, by and large because it's easy. But yet we continue to increase our ability to do without the grid. And I think that phased-in approach is the way to go, with an exception. There, there, there is this belief, especially in solar, that solar has a very long payback. What would you guys say if I told you? I can, I can give you an example where solar, and I mean a big full-on run your whole house off solar, very expensive, pays itself back the second you do it. Does that sound a little crazy? Like, you know, you put 25 grand into a solar system, it'll pay for itself in one day. Yeah, I don't, I have a solar system and it's never going to pay for itself. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's say that you are looking more out in the sticks, right? And let's say that I find a piece of property that sells for about $50,000 and it, it just, it's, it's almost impossible to get grid power to it. And if I did get grid power to it, it would cost me another $50,000. And let's say if that property existed where grid power was available to it, it'd be a hundred or one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. The reason that it's inexpensive is that it does not have access or easy access to grid power. If I go into that property and I develop the uh, alternative energy for running a household, and I effectively buy a hundred and twenty-five or hundred and fifty thousand dollar property for 50,000 plus 50,000 in infrastructure and that's a that's a significant amount of infrastructure especially if you do that's a lot that's more than you probably will ever need i've now got a piece of property that i have $100,000 into that's worth 125 or 150 and so it's an immediate payback so a lot of times with alternative energy sources like solar and wind or micro hydro we need to look at the total picture not just well, you know, how much do I save by cutting off, uh, you know, uh, uh, TxDOT, right? And, and when you look at it that way, it changes the quotient. So that's another way that people can look at things. A lot of times you can find these properties, and as long as you're confident, a lot of times the other side of them is there's an easement issue. So if you have guaranteed deeded easement, meaning you can access the property, then those are really great properties to develop. And a member of my expert council, a gentleman named Sean Mills, he kind of excels at doing that and helping people do that, kind of putting in the off-grid cabins and stuff and cherry-picking the land where the total cost is still less. That's interesting, man. That's I actually had a question about that because, like, obviously there's a lot of people that want to go off-grid, but, I mean, you have to purchase property, you have to buy very expensive solar panels and stuff like this. So there's there's huge barriers to entry, you know, for people like that. Like that was what I wanted to ask you was like, what do you what do you recommend to somebody, you know, who doesn't have the massive resources or the twenty five thousand or the fifty thousand to buy the property in a solar? Would you like would you recommend that they get into to groups or combine with others to to try to achieve that goal? Maybe that's always like everybody like you talk about being romanticized. Like I have seen more of this and I've always really cautioned people to be very careful with this whole man. We're going to get a community. We're going to do a planned community and we're all going to get together. We're going to grow all our own food. All I see is like disaster. I've, I've had enough business partnerships with one like-minded person for one thing that didn't work out the way either of us expected to, to know that if that simplistic thing, like we're going to make this widget and we're going to sell it, I'm going to market and you're going to handle manufacturing. If that can break down, imagine 
30 families with their yeah. own objective. Like it, 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 it does work at times, but usually there's a common ideal. And generally, I'm not a religious person, but it's generally religion that makes it work. Right. Or it's something that substitutes for religion ideology that makes it work. And 90 percent of them fail. So I'd be careful with that, especially with libertarians. Yeah, like the only person that hates a libertarian more than a statist is another libertarian, right? Like, so my approach would be more, you know, there is access to funding through mortgages. Mortgages done right when you buy property the right way do make sense. And it's very difficult to go out and obtain a mortgage to buy a raw piece of land and build a home. And there's some creative ways people get around it, but generally it does require more means than here's – Here's three percent down, and uh, and you know you get a mortgage and you buy the house. So what you can do is you buy a more conventional home, and then let's stage in the development. So when it comes to solar, if we just start there, there's there's what's known as grid tied solar, worst option out of everything because if the power is off, you don't have any power, right? That's then what I have. Right then there's there's grid tied with battery backup and a bypass. So that your surplus solar and your surplus grid power top off a battery bank constantly. You backfeed to the grid, and if you have that type of agreement in your state, you're actually selling any surplus you have back to the grid. And then if the power goes off, the bypass switch kicks in, and you run off solar and battery. Well, that's obviously better. The reason people don't do it is because the batteries cost more than the panels. Right? I mean, that's, it's that simple. The most expensive part of that infrastructure is the batteries. So where would I recommend you start with the batteries? So we start building the battery-based system first, and we, we're going to need an electrician for some of that, like to tie it into the grid properly. So because we don't, the reason they you need an electrician for this is if it's not done properly, power's out in your area, and you're backfeeding onto the grid, you can kill alignment, right? So we, we needed that not to happen. So we need to make sure that's done. But once that's done... We've got the expensive piece of the infrastructure first, whether that's, you know, built off, you know, like Iron Edison batteries or it's built off really high end new batteries that are available or it's built off something like a Tesla Powerwall, whatever. We build the battery first. Power goes off. We got power. Now, we only have as much as in that battery, but we got power. Well, now what do we do? Well, probably the other thing we probably did simultaneously, we bought a good generator. We had a professional electrician coming in and, and, and put in a way that we could plug that generator into our whole house even if it won't run the whole house it doesn't matter it's better than running extension cords and we set that up so that generator can charge the battery bank when the grid's down and again we have a bypass switch so that while the grid's down power's off now i've got batteries i've got a generator i can top my batteries off all day long with that generator and at night when i don't want that thing sitting out there advertising that i have power to everybody else i shut the generator off and i run off the battery silent and deep like on a on a submarine overnight now i can add all the solar panels i want and i can keep adding them and i can keep scaling that up as long as i maintain that battery system so think about the battery bank is what you don't want to do is put in let's say a six battery bank system and then a year later go get another six batteries and expand it because your entire bank will be dropped down to the efficiency and life expectancy of the weakest cell so when you're building out a battery bank system, you want all the batteries that will ever be part of that system installed at the same time. When you're upgrading later, you're better off selling off your used batteries and then upgrading, like go from 6 to 12 that way and recoup what you can. And you can Again, you can do it with anything. You can do it with a Tesla Powerwall. You can do it with GC2 golf cart batteries. 
And actually building out battery banks is not that difficult. And once you know what you're doing and you can learn in a couple hours, you're probably not going to blow anything up. But when it comes to how that ties into your home system and back feeds into the grid, if you have one question about how, don't get an electrician to do that work for you. If I take a battery and I bring it into my, you know, best case scenario into my office here where it's always around 70 degrees and I isolate it from the ground so it doesn't have ground drainage and it just sits there, it's going to lose 10% on an ongoing basis annually if it's a great battery. It's going to lose 10% of its energy. You can do that and it would certainly be better than like running the system off of it, but what you can but you're better off kind of all in on the batteries, right? Like I'd rather you save, like if I can afford a battery this month, save the money until you can afford a six battery bank or a 12 battery, whatever you want to do. What you can phase in very easily with no problems is solar panels, right? And then people need to look when it comes to the panels. It's getting to the point now where it's, it's getting easier and easier through certain suppliers. And you can even sometimes find them on places like eBay and all to buy pallets of panels, uh, multiple pallets. And we've had people within our community, you know, you talked about like the whole get together, getting together on a property is hard. Getting together on a purchase is easy. So we have, you know, like Sean will find, you know, like a deal and like it's way more panels than any one person could use. And we'll put it out into the community and we might get 20 or 30 people buying panels in one shot. And, you know, they may be factory seconds, which means, Nothing really. They have some dings and marks on them, but they function perfectly. They may be brand new. They may be a discontinued model, but uh, people are getting really good deals that way. But you can phase in the panels. Don't phase in the batteries. It's safe to say that solar is like the most attainable and cost efficient for power production, right? Because uh, I currently have a friend who's trying to install a windmill on her property, but like the local zoning laws and local mm. politics are kind of holding it up. And um, from what I've heard, of course, I'm no expert, but those are pretty expensive, right, uh, to try to install on the property. It's not so much your expensive. It, it, it depends. Like some places you really need um, a significant amount of tower to get enough elevation to get efficiency out of mm. uh, a wind turbine. Some places you have sufficient wind that, you know, if, if you can mount it on a roof. And the, the problem is if it's sufficient in size, it creates a lot of vibration and they tend to mess things up in like rafter systems on roofs and all. So you're kind of back to a tower system. For me to, I haven't done it here, but for me to do it here, I would have nothing get in my way as far as government. So that's a very location specific problem. There are places I know not far from me. You think Texas is all free with this stuff, but. Blue Hair HOA says you can't have solar panels. All these people claim to want alternative energy, but they think they're ugly. You know, so you can't park your car in your driveway overnight and you can't have a solar panel. So that's all situational. Sure. Um, wind generation is really not that expensive per kilowatt when the wind blows. It's just that it's very intermittent. The real reason, though, especially when you want to go full scale off grid, right? To consider wind is, generally speaking, when the sun's not shining, the wind is blowing. And when the wind is blowing, the sun's not doing a really good job of shining. So it it gives you different times when you're at peak generation from one versus the other. And there's some pretty affordable stuff out there. For like under 5000 bucks. you can generate a significant amount of power with wind. And and again, though you're back to situational, the other side would be, okay, I need a tower here, okay, 
then you need to make sure you have a well-anchored tower. I live on a rock slab, basically. I only have, at the best, a foot of soil. So, you know, putting something in, like, down guys, which when you go by, like, telephone poles, and you set big steel cable coming out of the side at, like, a a 70-degree angle going down into the ground, that's a down guy. And that, that eye that it's hooked to is significantly, like, six, eight feet in the ground. I can't do that without freaking dynamite. So... (laughs) <laughs> that's again that's situational like you always have to like there is no answer that this is what you should do for most people the easiest path to be able to generate your own power during a an emergency mid to short term is go buy a generator mm-hmm. i mean that's that's the easy answer and if you have the money and you have natural gas service go to generac and get a standby generator they'll plumb your your natural gas into it uh, from your natural gas provider, and that will be the last utility that fails. It's not that it can't. It will just be the last utility that fails. And then your power goes out, your generator turns on, your power comes on in your house. That's the easy answer. It's just it's still grid-tied. Yeah, and you definitely have to maintain those things, too. Like You can't just set it and buy it and forget it. Like oh, we, well, you know, we have hurricanes down here a lot, and a lot of people have those Generac uh, natural gas generators, and they don't maintenance them over the years, you know, and when they finally yeah. need them, they don't come on because they don't start them up, you know, every six months and 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 keep them in good running shape. If but, it's a if it's professionally installed, right, and it's and it's tied to a nat gas system or to like a propane pick, and then that ends up being the case, then your installer or contractor that you worked with to get it put in is the one that failed, not you. Those generators have they can be set up so that about once a week. They start. They, they they initiate the shutdown on the grid side. They start up. They run for fifteen minutes, and then they shut back down and turn themselves off. And so, yeah, when yeah. that's happening to people, the, the the person that that advised them when they made that purchase failed them. Now the other now the thing that happens all the time is somebody goes out and buys a Troy built or a Briggs and Stratton or something like that. Great little generator, you know, seven k, eight k generator. Puts it in their garage. And they don't maintain that fuel lines, rod, et cetera. You need to, you know, at least once a month go out, start it up, run it, put a load on it, test it, make sure it's right. You know, once a year, at least change the oil. You have an extended blackout, oil's cheap. They don't take that much. Uh, That's where you get into trouble without maintaining the generator. But Generax or other competitors should be very self-maintaining with maybe like an annual checkup by a contractor. Yeah, that makes sense, man. We actually did it. We're back to windmills. We actually interviewed a guy um, shit, like seven years ago now, I guess. This is a long time. His name was Jay Nygaard. He put a, um, a windmill on his property, and he actually ended up in jail for that because uh, so that, you know, you got to be really careful. Yeah, again, very situational, very situational. Where That's sure. God. Where was that? That's pretty bad. I've, I've heard of people being fined for a windmill. I've never heard anybody going to jail for it. Jeez. It was in Minnesota. Um, he fought a long battle with these people, man, and they, they went after him every chance he could get. And we we, we covered his story for, for a while and um, he ended up winning in the long term. But, man, it, it, they made his life miserable. <laughs> Was it, it was about – did it have anything to do with the grid, or was it more just like some sort of local ordinance? I'm or? pretty sure it was just a like a code situation where they, yeah. didn't like the, they didn't like the look of his turbine that he put on his, on his land. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. Jack, I, I heard you mention uh, the Tesla Powerwall a couple times now. Is that something you've had any experience with or have any knowledge about? I know some of Tesla products could be kind of gimmicky. I know the Tesla, uh, what, solar power uh, tile – 
for your roof. Uh, it was supposed to, it was touted as this big, you know, innovation. And uh, from what I've heard, um, it's hasn't even quite rolled out to the, the general public. Are you familiar with either of those things? I'm familiar with both of them. I don't have any practical hands-on with either. I think the roof thing is a gimmick. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Solar panels are a thing with a life expectancy that need to be replaced. We have roofing materials that, you know, the roof will last longer than the person. It costs more, but that's probably what you should do. I think there's been two installs in the United States of those right. uh, shingles. Two. So, like that, that, so we can just kill that one and put it on the shelf, and maybe Eli and his boys will figure it out down the road, but it's, it's, it's not there yet. My opinion of the Powerwall is based on reading and interpreting the specifications, understanding the batteries themselves that are in it, and the opinions of several different professional engineers, and it's pretty positive. I don't know that it makes sense economically versus doing kind of a self-build yet. I do think it will. We have to remember that uh, Tesla is building out these gigafactories uh, in, in several different locations. They're building one only about three hours south of me. Actually, one of my best friends is PMing the majority of the construction of that gigafactory. And it's, 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 it's going to be amazing what they can produce volume-wise when it's done. That was the one that was originally going to be in California. And Elon got pissed off and was like, if I can't do it here, I'm leaving. <laughs> and so th- th- that, that dropped uh, – for us, just right around the Austin area. And I think it's a very good product. Now, I think there is potential long-term, if things don't completely come unglued, that we'll see more like some of the the pilot programs we saw. I think Vermont did it, and I think a very small regional co-op in New Hampshire did it, where you could call up your electrical provider, give them $1,500, and get a power wall installed. And they were subsidizing it. And the reason that they were subsidizing it is that just like us, their biggest expense is storage, not generation. And so what they do is they build these plants, they call them peaker plants, so that they can produce more energy than they will ever need because they have to produce the peak demand. And the way they can cut the capex on building those peaker plants is to build massive battery storage capability. Well, all of these entities, these giant corporations, government, et cetera, they love centralization right up until they don't because centralization has a problem. If my giant battery factory catches on fire, I've got a problem. If a terrorist blows up my giant battery factory, I've got a problem. If we are stupid enough to start a war with another global power and they blow up my battery plant, I have a Like, if you keep going, I give you 100 places where centralized batteries, when you're talking the scale that we're speaking of here has a problem. So would it be better for me as a utility provider to subsidize the installation of these batteries throughout my entire network and be able to fill them up and draw on them as I need to? So that, I think, is the long-term plan. And a couple of these test case scenarios, and if if uh, if my electric provider said for $1,500 you can have a power wall installed, by the way, right, I'd say I'll take four. Yeah. And if they said we have a limited three, I'd be like, well, I'll take three, right? Like, and if they and if I get four, I'd be like, how long uh, does this thing run where I can still get like a couple more? And I might go out and like move some money around to buy six if I could get them for that price. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but when I analyze the industry and I think like a utility provider, they're getting a bargain. Because they're decentralized and they're probably still paying less per kilowatt of storage space. 
And now it, it it's not a lease. You got to understand it's a subsidized purchase. I become responsible for the maintenance, but they get the utility of being able to use it. Now, could I eventually screw them over and go full off grid and throw the switch? Sure. But they don't care, right? Because most people aren't gonna. And then if you start adding solar into that, because I think the next thing they might start doing as government begins to wane on some of their subsidization of solar, you know, if I'm if I'm Edison Power or whatever, I might start subsidizing some solar. Maybe I put together something like a, a crack squad of installers and I just you go buy your panels or you buy from our supplier and we get your install done cheap. Maybe I do the install at, at cost because that still costs me less than building a solar farm. So I think this distributed model, this is like the one place where, and they're going to have to really do some soul searching because you know they don't want to, mm-hmm. but it's a very, it's, it, it's that apple that you look at the whole tree and you go, man, I want to, I want to eat that one apple, man, or that one peach. Like it's, it's, it's that juicy on the vine for them that if they were to properly implement that, and then it fits the whole kind of move towards sustainable energy I, because I don't like buy into global warming hysteria and all people often think that, well, he, he doesn't want us to move into a, a, you know, renewables economy. I want us to, it's just, it's a long path and it's storage, not generation right now. The cheapest power you can generate is solar. We can generate power over the life of a system for less than any other way. That's how cheap it's gotten. You got to do something with the energy though. It, it's not an on-demand system and it never will be. Yeah. That's brilliant about the Powerwall situation, man. You need to be running a power company out there. I love that idea, man. I, I don't know why. You know, I think the only reason that they haven't done it is they, if, if somebody phoned up Musk tomorrow and said, we want to buy a, a million and a half Powerwalls, can't make them yet. And, right. and that's what people need to realize about Tesla. And I'm not a big fan or a big enemy of Elon. I think he's got good and bad like all people. But Tesla is not a car company. The car is the sexy thing that allows them to get all the money that they're pulling out of public coffers to build a battery company. Tesla's a battery company. Yep. And it ain't there yet. This is not an easy thing to do. This is going to take a lot more time. But I think we're a couple of years out to where he'd go, you sure you only want a million and a half? Because we can do <laughs> two million next month. I think we're, we're heading in that direction. Man, so... We've uh, we've talked about energy. What uh, what would you do for like uh, for like long term water and sewage, like you had mentioned earlier? Okay. I have a uh, Jason's actually been to it. We I have a cabin like my. It's a bug out place. It's um it's it's off grid. It's uh it's on an island surrounded by water in the middle of the swamp. <clears throat> Good and for you. I collect <laughs> rainwater, and you know I when I've stayed out there, we stayed out there last year during COVID for with my family and. One of the problems we ran into is we ran out of rainwater, you know, and if it's not raining, I actually have a system that I'm not going to get into detail about it, how I can filter it. I pull it out of the bayou and, and then filter it and then treat it with, with chlorine. But I'm, I'm really interested in like in what you have like for solutions for, for, for long-term water and then for, for sewage because you, you definitely have to, you know, it's not bad. Like you said, for five days, you can dig a hole and it's over. Yeah. But for long-term sewage, you could you could run into some really nasty problems, get everybody sick, and if you don't know what you're doing there. So, uh, yeah, if you, you wouldn't mind elaborating on that, man, it'd be cool. Sure, sure. We do have some uh, rain catch ourselves. We have about 3,000 gallons. It's more of right now we use it for gardening because it's the best water for gardening there is, uh, is to use rainwater. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And but that's enough. That's a reserve of water. And if you ran out of water and rain catches the way you primarily want to go, then I would say you probably need more tanks or more tank. So, like in your instance, how much how much storage capacity do you have? I only have about twelve hundred gallon storage. Yeah. So. so, like you know, poly tanks. If you that's and I'll give people this right now. If you can't do an in the ground cistern, and many people can, it's cost prohibitive. It's more expensive. The poly tanks you can buy at like a tractor supply or whatever, like a nine hundred dollar, fifteen hundred gallon tank. You can generally you're going to find that if there's a place near you selling them, there's a place they're getting them from less than like the, another hour, hour and a half away, and you can buy them for about a third of the price. So increase your capacity would be your you know in your situation a good example of what to do. In my situation, it goes back to energy because I have a well. So as long as I have electricity, I have water, and my well is deep enough that if I ever pump all the water out of the ground, we got other problems. So for me. <laughs> It's about having enough energy to run the well. For waste, as long as I can locate, and I guess I could do it myself if I really had to. I just don't want to. As long as I can get somebody once every five years to pump my septic, right, to keep my septic running right, I'm gold. I don't, I don't have an issue there. I do see it kind of as a, um, a, a waste of a resource as somebody that's big into permaculture and gardening, and I think composting waste is a great thing to do. And if it was just me, I would do it, but I'm married. And uh, sometimes your other half doesn't want certain things certain ways. And sometimes you're smart enough to know when to say, okay, right? So, you know, we're not going to do that. But there are a lot of ways to handle waste from composting. Um, There's some really great composting toilets that will handle that for you. For urine, honestly, that's the easy layup. And that's, you know, you get some good untreated straw or something like that. And you have a place where you go when you have to take a leak and, you just add enough carbon, and you make incredibly uh, good compost as long as you get you know the other members of your family to do it. So there's there's multiple approaches to this. I know people who have built kind of the off grid community, and they just basically build things that look like outhouses, but they kind of go you go up some stairs to use them, and they take you know like the big ninety gallon roller garbage cans, like you know you know what I'm talking about the really heavy mm-hmm. duty ones. Like the ones you get, like a lot of times uh, waste disposal companies will, will lease them to their customers. And, that you know, you wheel that in there, and it's, you know, if if you pee, it's one handful of sawdust, and if you poo, it's two. And it takes a little, you know, like five minutes of training where the person's not qualified to live where you live. And when that thing gets close to full, they just throw the lid down on it and, and wheel it away and let it sit for a year. And at that point, <laughs> there's no smell. Like, just there's no turning. There's no messing with it. That's all they do. And it, it, and some of them do separation, like there's a pee hole and a poo hole, and because the urine will actually compost much more quickly, and it's a much more pleasant thing if you don't put them together. So there's that approach as well. But if you're in a rural situation with more of a conventional build, honestly, septic has worked for a very, very long time, and it the the benefit to using it is that you don't have to get members of your family to adapt to a system that they may not be comfortable with. Right. <laughs> like throwing sawdust on top yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, and you have to use two handfuls for that. That's a three banger there. Like and then then there is like so well what do you do if you live in suburbia suburbia USA and obviously long term off grid like the whole Shit, it's the fan happens. That's not going to be a good place to stay. Who knows what you're going to do? But uh, a tornado or a hurricane comes in, floods out the sewer system, and you can't flush your toilet for a week, but you know it's going to come back. Well, then your easy answer would be keep a couple gallons of, like, the chemical toilet solution, the blue stuff that comes in a big jug around, five-gallon bucket, heavy-grade contractor bags, and a toilet seat. 
And it may not be fun, but, you know, what's less fun is thinking, I think it's okay to use it now, hitting the flush lever, <laughs> and then it all comes up on the floor. So there's always there's always a solution if we'll just stay attuned to the fact that if, if we just think about the need and then say what's available, because this is what people need to realize with preparedness. It's not about how do I deal with the need when I don't have what I need for the need. It's how do I analyze the need to determine what will go in absence that will make it not work anymore, and what do I get my hands on now so that when that happens, I'm prepared for it. It's a preemptive methodology, right? Like that's that's the big divergence between what I call modern survival of survivalism and wilderness survival. The whole precept of wilderness survival is I went hiking with my buddy and he fell down a cliff and I had to go after him and now I've splinted up his ankle, but I can't get back up the cliff and I gotta find my way out of here and keep him from dying at the same time. It's something went wrong. Right? The whole idea that you wilderness survival is you go out with your knife and some cordage and you live for a week. That's a great training tool, but it's not survivalism. If you if you decide, you know, I really want a pizza, you leave. Right? You know? <laughs> right. You know, if you're if you're the people on like the, the Discovery Channel on Dual Survivor, you, you, you eat a pizza that night while everybody thinks you're living on pig, right? Like <laughs> wilderness survival is I got in a situation that something got screwed up and I only have this limited amount of resources. Almost everybody listening to this right now can probably, in a day, if they had to, walk to a Home Depot or a Lowe's and a grocery store, let alone get in their car and drive there. So now we take this time of plenty and we use it to store up and preemptively head off these absences. So that brings me to my next question, which is food. So, uh, I, you know, we're, we, we store a lot of food. I always have at least a year and a half of food on hand at all times for four people. And uh, I figure if I can't figure something out in a year and a half, you know, on how to get food, then uh, I'm doing it wrong. But um, so w- what would you suggest for as far as um, like off grid? I know obviously growing vegetables and everything, but like how, 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 how would people go about um, creating a sustainable means of, of feeding a family of four, for example? Well, let's let's start with the storage storage aspect is is exactly where most people should start right away yeah. because you can do that, and a year and a half is great. Like that means you can feed your neighbors; you don't have to shoot them. Because we're, we're probably not going to go into a place where you can't procure any other food for a year and a half. I would tell most people if if, if Americans in general had sixty days of food supply stored up, the average family that was a that was kind of like a a basic. Thing that we taught as an adult life skill, you know, like here's how to balance a checkbook. And by the way, since you eat every day, have two months worth of food, we'd have mm-hmm. almost no worries of people starving in this country with just two months. And the way you get there initially is really easy. Step one, get a notebook. It's going to be your food journal, at least a couple pages of it. Every day when you eat, the kids eat, the mom eats, the dad eats, the, the, the brother-in-law that sleeps on your couch, that's couch surfing eats, write down what they ate. And just keep doing it. And if it was already on the list, put a check mark next to it. And if it's storable without refrigeration, put a star next to it. And when you get done doing that for about two weeks, all the stuff that has multiple check marks and a star, start copy canning that. And we, we do this with canned goods, but it doesn't have to be a canned good, which means you go to the store and you were going to buy one can of this or one box of this or one container of this, buy two or three. Bring it home and start building your pantry deep like they do the shelves 
at a grocery store. The newest item goes in the back, the oldest item's in the front, and keep doing that until you have a deep stock of it. Oh, let's say two weeks' worth, three weeks' worth even. Then go on to the next item and start building that out with a copy candy because anybody can do that. Uh, it, it, it's not doomsday prepper storage, uh, you know, t- t- giant uh, buckets of beans that people don't even know how to cook when they do it. It is a very basic concept of let's build a deep, deep pantry. And that would be step one. You know, step two might be make sure you have that energy shored up and get a deep freezer. Because I live most of my life eating meat. It's, it's my primary food source. I'm very much on the ketogenic carnivore train at this point. Uh, so when I'm growing food, I'm growing mostly I'm growing micronutrients, right? I'm growing greens and basil and herbs and lettuces and kale and things like that. Mm. I'm not doing a lot of um, high carbohydrate like potatoes and carrots and stuff like that, a little bit here and there. And so then you start to develop that. So now you've got to make sure you have a way that if the power goes out for a week, you don't lose that investment. And then I, I, I really think what most people are missing in this, everybody wants to store 500 buckets of beans and rice, and that's your crisis that's your crisis coffer, right? That's like, it's super cheap. You won't die. Beans and rice are enough of a complete protein that you'll stay alive. You probably should do that too. Your easy answer with that, get, get you know, five-gallon buckets, plain Jane, regular, everyday five-gallon buckets. It'll be fine. It's not food grade, whatever. It's fine. Fill it up with rice and beans. Go to the sporting goods stores. Uh, right about this time of year is a good time to do it, kind of hunting seasons and in most places. You know those... Uh, the hand warmers, you know what I'm talking about, guys? Mm-hmm. Once you open a package, you shake them up, and they warm your hands. They're oxygen absorbers. They're exactly the same as a commercially available oxygen absorber. Really? And they're stupid cheap, <laughs> and the way they work, same way an O2 absorber works, there's iron filings in there, and there's a chemical compound that causes the iron to rapidly rust. That's what produces heat. Well, the way you get iron oxide is the iron bonds with oxygen. So now it's an O2 absorber, right? Um, and no that kidding. generates heat, but it also pulls the air out. So you take the bucket, you fill it up a little bit from the top, you throw a hand warmer in it, opened, put the lid on it, you've got O2 absorber, giant, more in capacity. The one thing to know is that lid's never coming off of there without destroying it because it's going to form a vacuum. And you're not. So you, there's lids called gamma lids you can get that basically it's a ring and they spin on. If you plan on using it regularly, then you want one of those. If you're putting this away for long-term stores, there's your rice and beans. From there, either start producing some form of livestock-based product, meat, eggs, milk, something like that. And additionally, or if you're not going to do it for yourself, the most critical missing link in all of this is relationships. And when I say relationships, I mean ongoing purchase relationships with local suppliers. Almost anywhere you live, somebody's producing meat animals, milk animals, egg animals. You might even have to circumvent the government with the milk thing, depending on where you are. But form those relationships now. Because every every small-scale meat, egg, et cetera, producer that I know when COVID hit was turning away customers. Because overnight, everybody discovered, oh, shit, food's not exactly always there. And they started exploring alternatives, and they found out oh, there's a guy down the road that, that raises uh, beef cattle. Yeah, there is. And three weeks ago, he would have been happy to sell you a half beef to split with another customer. Now you're going to wait two years. Form yeah. those relationships now for, because meat, whether people want to accept this or not, is the most nutrient-dense food 
humans have access to. It's what we evolved is Paleolithic man eating. If you want to be a vegan, God bless you, go forth. If you want to be a vegetarian, God bless you, go forth. But when it comes to providing for yourself, especially in brittle landscapes, it's, it's much easier to do with animals if you build animal-supporting systems. So I do feed my ducks, for instance, but it's because it keeps them really happy. They don't want to fly away. They don't want to leave. And it lets me do more than I could do otherwise on the piece of land that I have. But they're getting 70% of their food off the land. Some of that's me cultivating it. Some of that's basically me managing it because they will graze. Uh, they're, they're more of grazers than chickens are. It's why I went with them. If I had three acres in Tennessee, I'd probably have a few pigs running around. And and that holistic approach, it's storage, it's conventional foods, it's local supply, it's growing your own, it's producing your own. It's that relationship. You know, I got a guy I buy a half beef from every year. Some years I shoot a couple deer and a couple hogs. I don't really need it. I buy it and give some of it away because I don't ever want to not be on his customer list. I want, I want, I got a, I got a guy that'll sell me half a cow once a year, 1.4 miles from my house. I, I never don't want that relationship. Yeah, definitely, man. We had the same thing. Like, uh, I used to be in a, a local co-op with a big farmer down here, and um, they actually went out of business, man. They, you know, they didn't have enough people in the co-op to keep the their numbers up to be able to be sustainable. So now the guy sells real estate, you know, and they just grow for themselves. But that would have been a, a huge, um, you know, a, a boon for their business during COVID, like you just said. But Unfortunately, everybody didn't really care at the time. and uh, Well, and so. that's part of it, right? So it's not just so that they'll be there when you need them. It's so they don't go away. Because, right. like, if, if you're running a grass-fed beef business, it takes from calf to marketable uh, adult, it's about an 18 months. And, 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 and a lot of grass-fed producers that really want to develop the fat on grass and not with, with corn – if they can economically make it work, we'll go more to 20 to 24 full months because that's where you can get a, a, a young beef animal to have that succulent fat. Like people think you can't fatten a cow on grass. Well, where do you think cows came from? Right? They, they're supposed to eat grass. That's what they're supposed to do. But if you're not doing business with them in good times, they won't not only like either they'll be there and you can't get to them in bad times or they won't even be there. And that makes it harder for everybody else. Um, you know, we, we have, we sell duck eggs still. We're a much smaller operation than we used to be. We have customers that are like, I want to, they'll call you up. What do you got? You know, they want to buy from you so you don't go away. Well, if I ever get into a situation where I have to choose which customer I can serve, who do you think I'm going to serve? Yeah, exactly. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So we're getting close to running out of time here. Uh, it's been awesome having you on. Um, I know you do a lot of work highlighting products on Amazon that coincide with uh, the homesteading lifestyle. And I know you're on a bunch of other smaller alternative media platforms. I think uh, I've seen you on MeWe and Float. Um, I think Gab as well. Um, is there one that you you like? You know, I know we're changing gears here a little bit, but... No, it's fine. Is it... Uh, I think look, Float is probably your favorite. Yeah, I think I'm excited about Float more than the average Float user because I have a relationship with Kingsley and Aaron, who are the the, the owners, founders of Float. And so I know what the new platform is going to be, and I've known for like a year. And as great as Float is and as great as they are, where they're headed is really, really exciting. So I I love what, what they're all about because you've got a company. I think a lot of times people look at it since they know the first name of the people 
uh, that are running it and that they do interact with people. They actually show up. They welcome, like, a, a new person will show up and sign up that, that, that's just, like, an absolute nobody in, in, in the world as far as notoriety. And all of a sudden, Kingsley or Aaron are introducing them to the whole community. And because of that, I think they look at it as like, oh, it's, you know, like, it's like me and you, Jason and Matt. We got together and started a, a social media platform. We just kind of coded it in our garage. They're a legit entity with a significant amount of, of, of VC money behind them. They don't have to do that. They're choosing to do that. Right. And to me, that's that's really important. And they are not aligning. They're not trying to go out and be the next parlor and get all the Fox News guys on, right? They're they're doing it for the people that want that open, free, you know, free uh, speech platform. But they're building so far beyond it. They had, you know. Uh, Twitter keeps talking about lightning integration. They they built Bitcoin into their platform right out of the gate. Uh, They're launching a token called Float Token that will be awarded to users just for using the platform. And they're going to run the Bitcoin emission schedule with it. But it's going to actually be, instead of mined, it's going to actually be generated by user activity. So the more the platform gets used... Uh, the more people benefit from that initial distribution of tokens. They're doing an NFT, but they're doing a marketplace. They're adding community. It's, it, it seems to me like it's going to do everything Twitter does and everything Facebook does without the tech oligarchy over top of it and without the unholy alliance. I mean, my bigger problem with like Google, Amazon, YouTube, Twitter, in, in, in spite of all the things that in Apple, like the big five, in spite of all the evil that they do independently, the clear back end ass grabbing of each other in what was done, like, and I'm no fan of the Orange Man, but what was done uh, to Donald Trump was clearly coordinated. What was done to Parler as a competitor, to me, that's a I don't remember what you call it. is it Rico? You know, like it's not Rico. It's uh, there's another term for it. We're like the antitrust or whatever. Antitrust and all, yeah, like right. clearly, like. Apple, Facebook, YouTube, all, everybody got together and destroyed. And, and, and what's left of it now is it's come back and made peace with Apple is 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 uh, nothing compared to what it was. Like, that is is really disturbing to me. So having an entity that's so far outside the box, they really can't ever join the club of Rome, so to speak. Like, I, I love that as well. And then the people are just great. And uh, I'm going to be at Float Fest in, in March this year. If anybody wants to meet me, you can get on Float and learn about that. Uh, I think they're still doing a pre-sale with tokens, but they're they're leveraging an NFT into it to stay out of the trouble that Odyssey uh, and Library got into with the SEC kind of coming at them. Now, that's another platform I love, by the way, though, is Odyssey. Um, I think if you're a YouTube creator in this audience and you're not on Odyssey, you need to spend 15 minutes to link your Odyssey account to your YouTube account, and all your YouTube stuff will go to Odyssey. And if YouTube ever kills off your account, you won't lose everything, and you'll get into another audience. I think we need to be exploring these alternatives. There's so many of them out there that I don't think we can all be on all of them or all be part of all. You mentioned MeWe. I love it for what it is, but I've been on it for two years, and you know what it is? It's exactly what it was two years ago. Yeah. They're not innovating. They're not developing. They're not providing us more tools. They're not providing a marketplace. Um, they're not making it better. What I love about Float is it's a clear vision of where they're headed, and, and I, I do think they will become the alternative social media giant, or as I just say, the social media giant. Because I'm now looking at, you know, Facebook and Twitter and and, and like mainstream media, and I, I don't really look at it as alternative media anymore. It's legacy media. And new media. 
<laughs> and and I think that's the world we're getting into because people the, people that won't ever leave Facebook, they still don't trust them. Right. right. I mean, how many friends do you have that are like, well, I can't, man, I can't. What do you mean you can't? Sure. Like, I, I don't, you know, you, you, of course you can. Watch, just just stop using it. And, you know, like now I'm back to where I stream my, when I do live streams, I stream it on, on Facebook, but only because I found out through my platform StreamYard I can do it without ever going there. <laughs> so I, I won't I will not sully my browser with with Facebook.com. Um, and yeah, floats the one I'm most jazzed about. But, you know, any of them that aren't part of the unholy, you know, quintuplets or whatever, like sure. just pick something and develop your relationships there and understand. I, I think one of the things that makes it hard for people. So they go open an account on Mastodon or Float or MeWe or whatever and they've built up a friend base and a follower base on these other legacy platforms, and they're used to putting something out there and getting interaction right away. Right. So then they go and they set up an account on Float. Nobody knows them. Maybe they have one or two people there that, that, that do follow them, and they don't get the interaction. It, it, it's like if you went to a bar, a re- you know, you just have kind of person that's part of your social scene. You go hang out at a bar, and you got to where you were a regular and you knew everybody, and then – because of life circumstances, you move four states away. Well, going to that bar is not an option anymore. And when you find kind of a cool local bar to go hang out in, you don't expect that you're going to walk in there and everybody's going to be like, hey, Jason, man, how's it going? What are you up to? Like, you know that you're going to have to develop new relationships and new friendships. And if you do, you know that they might become more powerful and more significant than your old stomping grounds. So you go in with a reasonable expectation, where I think people go into social media and what I call the microwave mindset, right? Like everything's fast and quick in America. Like you don't have to wait on anything. This is relationships you're talking about. If, unless you're somebody with a huge brand, and I mean way bigger than you or I, like somebody with like a massive, massive, if you're Joe Rogan, you can go set up on one of these platforms and you can have, you know, 10,000 followers instantly. The rest of us, we're going to have to rebuild those relationships, but it's worth doing. And I think that's where like, Everything we're talking about today, I'm glad I said that, that microwave mindset, that is the biggest screw-up in America today. It's the biggest reason people don't do the work necessary to get what they want. When I was a little kid, I mean little, I was like six, seven years old, my dad one night dropped me off at my grandmother's work. She worked for an old-school diner. This was in Jacksonville, Florida, in like 83. And I was going to basically stay with her until she was done with her shift, and then I was going to spend the night with her for the weekend. And she's like, you know, you're sitting, you're a kid, you're sitting there. There's no iPhone to play with in 1983, so you're kind of bored. So what do adults do? They offer you food. She's like, you want a piece of pie? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And they pull it out of those spinny things, and it's a piece of apple pie, and it's ice cold. She goes, do you want it hot? Being a kid, I want it now, right? And I'm like, I, I guess how long will it take? She says, not long. She walks back behind the counter, and like 30 seconds later, it brings me to steaming hot piece of apple pie. I had never seen a microwave in my life in 1983. I didn't know what it was. And I was blown away by the fact that this ice cold piece of pie in about 30 seconds became hot. That was our country 40 years ago. When something like that happened, we were like, wow. Mm-hmm. Today, we expect everything right now, this minute. And the stuff we're talking about today, what it really is, it's not really preparedness. Preparedness is one piece of it. It's being non-brittle and resilient. That's a piece. This is lifestyle design. Instead of letting society design life for you, you're designing your life your way. And you better get on it, guys, because, and I don't mean you personally, I mean in general, people listening, you've got to get on this because you have two choices with life. You design your life or society designs life for you. 
And that was terrifying in 2015. It should be absolutely dystopian terrifying today. If you look at what's going on and you think you're going to let those sociopaths design your life for you, what are you going to end up with in 10 years? What are your kids going to end up with in 20 or 25 years if you don't take control of this? You take control of this now. Stop expecting the pie to be hot in 30 seconds. Be glad you have a piece of pie at all and get on with it. All right, folks, we're at the end of the podcast, so please don't forget to uh, subscribe and rate and review this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Also, please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing. Go to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com. At the top there, you'll find a tab to donate or subscribe. We also have a place to sign up for our newsletter. Um, and yeah, check out Legal Shield while you're there. It's a, a great option, uh, a great app. Always have a lawyer in your pocket. Uh, and follow us on social media. We're on 15 different social media platforms. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Jack, for joining us. I, I would love to see you do like a libertarian version of the the Survivor Man TV show. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> but, um, I look forward to shaking your hand. I'm planning on being at the Float Fest in March as well. Oh, cool. But uh, yeah, we very much appreciate you taking the time to join us today. You've been a, a great resource with your the Survival Podcast over the years. Uh, I would assume many more to come. Um, if you like what you heard today, I'd urge our listeners to consider supporting Jack and the Survival Podcast at just 20 cents an episode. And I think you also get other perks with that membership. But uh, please, man, just keep up the great work. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on Float. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. If people want to find the site, it is thesurvivalpodcast.com or tspc.co if you don't want to type all that stuff in. And, and yeah, come on by. We're actually we're hitting, we're about to hit a landmark. Uh, we will... Uh, not quite do it this week. I don't know when you guys are going to put this out, but, th- but this week I'm going to end the week at 2,999 episodes. So Monday wow. next week we will release our 3,000th episode. I think like the only people out there that have a, a track record like that are probably Adam Curry and Adam Carolla. Um, nice. I, I've, I've done this for so long because I love it, you know, and I, I don't put myself in their league, but on 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 longevity, yeah. And there's a reason. So, yeah, uh, if you folks want to come by and, and have a listen, you know, if what I would encourage them to do is obviously subscribe. Any podcaster wants that. But if you have a specific uh, thing you're interested in, hydroponics, aquaponics, permaculture, uh, off-grid generators, whatever, we have so much that we've done. And our, we're long form like you guys are. We're an hour, hour and a half a day on average. And we bring in real experts that talk about how to really do it. Use the search function and find it. And if you guys ever want to dig into like one thing and you'd like me to come back, I'm happy to do so. Awesome, Definitely, man. man. I enjoyed the hell out of this. It could have gone for two hours. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. you coming on, man. Yeah, thanks so much, Jack. Thank you all.